Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Emma Adjaman, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Tamsin Hazel, Chartered Financial Planner at Succession Wealth. One of the key determinants of what your asset allocation should be and which investments you use to express it is your risk appetite. But determining what this is is not easy and, as you will have seen in many of our weekly portfolio clinics, many investors over or underestimate the amount of risk that is appropriate for them. Emma, why does it matter if you under or overestimate the amount of risk you take? Well, basically because you can kind of make mistakes on both sides. If you take too much risk, you could end up losing money that you can ill afford to lose. And if you take too little risk, you can actually not meet your goals, which is obviously not what you want to do either. Okay, so what exactly determines how much risk you can take? There are three main attributes, I'd say. The first is an individual's personal attitude to risk, and that can be quite subjective. The second issue is how much risk you actually need to take to achieve your investment goals. And thirdly, you also need to consider your capacity for loss, which is basically the amount that you can afford to lose. Okay, so there's obviously a few things. And taking the first and the personal attitude, this isn't a technical consideration, perhaps like the others. So do people at least get this part right? You think so, but actually that's not the case. I spoke to a number of financial planners um, to write this article and they were saying that actually people tend to often take too much or want to take too much risk or too little risk before they, you know, sort of a financial advisor advises them that actually it's better for them to take a different amount of risk. So one plan I spoke to said roughly around 50% of people actually want to take too much risk or too little risk in relation to um, what they need to take to meet their goal. Okay, so focusing in on specifically your personal attitude to risk, um, how do you work that out? Yeah, I mean, it, it can be a bit tricky. I mean, financial planners use psychometric tests to work this out. And I think there are quite a few options online that people can use themselves. But really, it's all about knowing yourself as an individual. And I think that um, most people kind of instinctively know whether they're more risk averse or whether they're more adventurous. And it's just to kind of recognise your natural tendency for what you like to do. And, um, but also think about this in relation to the risk you need to take to make your, to meet your investment goals. Okay, now you mentioned alongside personal attitude risks, a couple of other areas to assess. So, I mean, is, personality is that the most important consideration um it's not actually so the financial plans i spoke to said that personal attitude is important because you don't want to be lying awake you know worrying about whether or not your investments are going to go down if you're more risk cautious for example but really the most important things are to understand how much you can afford to lose your capacity for loss and how much risk you need to take to make sure you actually end up achieving your goals how do you work out then how much risk you need to take it really depends on your investment goals and your time horizon. Say, for example, if you wanting to save a deposit for a house and you're wanting to take, you know, invest for maybe a period of five to ten years, you're going to need to take less risk um, than if you're wanting to invest for retirement and you've got a much longer time horizon um, for which to cope with markets going up and down. So that's something to consider. Um, it's it's about your goal and also the amount of time that you've got to be in the market. Okay, and you obviously also mentioned capacity for loss. How do you work that one out? 
Well, it's really about understanding what you can lose and whether or not that's going to have a detrimental impact on you still achieving your goals. So, for example, if markets were to fall 20% five years from the date that you plan to retire, um, how would you be able to cope with that? If you could cope with that, then it shows that you've got enough capacity for loss to be able to be in the risk, a sort of higher risk position. But if actually that big fall is going to have a big impact on when you can retire, how much income you're going to be able to draw, then it shows that you've got a lower capacity for loss. And is this consideration the most important one then? Yeah, I would, I would definitely say it, it really is critical because it kind of puts a break on what you can do. If, as we were saying, you, you might be a more sort of adventurous investor, um, adventurous um, personal attitude to risk rather. But if you've actually got a much lower capacity for loss, that means that you really need to sort of pay attention to what you can actually afford to lose rather than sort of follow your natural instincts to, to, to go into more adventurous assets. Tamsin, do your clients consistently over or underestimate their risk appetite? I find that clients tend to underestimate their ability to withstand investment loss, um, ultimately driven by fear of losing money and running out of money completely. I find that aversion to loss tends to be stronger in people than the desire to maximise returns. Okay, so what are some of the main mistakes they make? They Clients often underestimate how much they can withdraw from their portfolio in their decumulation phase. And I think part of a financial planner's role is to give clients confidence to make their wealth work for them and to support the lifestyle that they'd like. It's always really advisable to hold a cash contingency fund to cover at least six months worth of regular expenditure. Um, And by holding that, it should prevent ever needing to draw on invested funds at a lower point in the market than preferred. And it gives licence to take the necessary risk. So moving on to that, how do you suggest people go about determining how much risk we can take? Uh, Well, echoing really what's already been uh, said, it's really important to give clients information to help put the discussion about risk into context. So while past returns can never be guaranteed to be repeated, uh, they do provide a really useful guide. So looking at past trends is a good starting point. Um, When helping our clients decide on an investment strategy, we find it's important to not only consider their natural preference for risk, um, which is ascertained or determined through the um, psychometric risk profiling, uh, but it's also really important to establish their need, their requirement to take risk to meet certain objectives, and also, as already has been said, the ability to cope with investment loss. Um, And we find that cash flow modelling, which is essentially a visual projection of wealth over a lifetime to take into account various income and expenditure assumptions, can be a really useful way of showing the impact of different uh, risk levels and growth rates. Okay. Um, So as we're drilling down to the practicalities, how do you work out what sort of investments are suitable for your risk appetite? It all starts with asset allocation. Equities, stocks and shares have historically generated a higher level of return over the long term than other asset types. 
however, equities have also been far more volatile. Uh, whereas fixed interest securities, government and corporate bonds are low risk, not no risk, but they should really, in a portfolio, act as an anchor, allowing equities to hopefully drive returns over the long term. Um, once a risk profile has been agreed, an investment solution with an appropriate equity fixed interest split should be selected. Um, the higher the risk profile, the greater the equity weighting. That's obviously the things you should do. Just thinking about it, is are there any things you should avoid? For example, if you've got a low risk appetite, is there anything you should totally avoid? Um, well, the obvious one is to make sure the equity holding is right, so not to be too heavily exposed mm. to stocks and shares. Another one is thinking about AIM market stocks. So yes. there are certain types of investment really designed or have a, a BPR business uh, uh, inheritance tax relief uh, benefits um, but those types of investments invest in uh, small unquoted companies so by their nature they carry a relatively high level of risk so small unquoted company shares should be avoided by low risk investors. Yeah, think about people with high risk appetite because Emma obviously pointed out the danger of not making enough. What would you say if, you know, if you high growth, high risk appetite, you know, what should you avoid in that instance? Well, what I find interestingly with some clients is that they really hold too much in cash. So I would say that's the obvious thing to avoid. Because, of course, it's important to, when uh, deciding on an investment strategy to look at assets holistically. And so when, when you look at a client's assets as a whole, very often, particularly with our wealthier, perhaps older clients, they hold too much in cash as a security blanket. Um, but that is going to, it poses inflation risk mm -hmm. and it's going to cap the returns that they could ultimately achieve. Yeah. Picking up what you said earlier, everybody should have at least... Absolutely. Six expenditure uh, that, that's yeah. the, the rule of thumb, six yeah. months worth of regular expenditure. Um, but as I say, we typically see with, with some of our clients that they're holding on as a security blanket to far too much cash. Yeah. Uh, obviously, everybody's lives and circumstances change. So how often would you say that you need to reassess your risk appetite? Well, we offer our clients at Succession um, the opportunity to complete a psychometric risk profiling questionnaire every three years. Um, of course, in theory, this type of questionnaire is designed to identify natural preference for risk. So this which is a personal um, one that Emma was talking exactly about. Exactly yeah. that, yeah. So um, a natural preference for risk is an eight, and, mm. and in theory it doesn't fundamentally change. But of course, as a client's circumstances change, then their need to take risk and their ability to perhaps cope with investment loss will change. And for that reason, we revisit uh, the risk discussion on at least an annual basis. Okay, thank you, Tamsin. And you can see Emma's full guide on how to work out your risk appetite in the money section in this week's magazine and the website. If you've reached your sixth decade, you can start to look forward to retirement and all the opportunities that come with it, whether just a few extra minutes in bed because you've quit the daily commute or exploring far-flung horizons you've never had time to visit. However, how soon you retire and how much fun you can afford to have when you retire relies on how much you've saved and planned ahead. Townsend, why should you think about retirement planning in particular when you hit 50? Well, whilst people are in their 
20s, 30s, 40s, their financial resources tend to be pulled in other directions, mainly on high mortgage payments, rent, childcare costs, education. Um, Once people reach their 50s, whilst all of those costs aren't necessarily gone by any means, they are typically reduced. Also, people in their 50s are likely to be at the top of their career, uh, so their earnings are likely to be at their peak. And so it means that really the decade between 50 and 60 can be a great time to focus on pension saving. Okay, so when you hit 50, uh, after you've had your big birthday party, what's the first thing you need to think about with regard to your retirement? Well, firstly, timing. Uh, At what age would you like to retire? Uh, Maybe ask, do you envisage a set pivotal retirement date? Or is the transition from working to retirement likely to be more fluid? And then also, how much retirement income would you like to generate? Okay, so how do you work out the target income? A, A good starting point is to break down current expenditure. It helps firstly to identify how much can be committed for retirement saving, how much surplus there is. And also from that point, retirement expenditure can be predicted. So the expenses that will no longer continue in retirement can be excluded, obviously. And then there may be other expenses that need to be factored in. Um, For example, in the early years of retirement, people typically are interested in doing a bit more travelling, going on holiday. Okay, what steps do you need to take to ensure your pensions and investments will meet your target income? The first thing to say is that it's really worth breaking that forecasted retirement expenditure down into two categories. I suggest a a baseline expenditure, so that being how much do you need to meet all of your day-to-day living needs? And then secondly, a discretionary expenditure, so for the holidays and um, the travel And then ideally, any guaranteed sources of income in retirement should be identified and and should really meet that baseline expenditure. Important to remember that the state pension falls into that category. Um, Always advisable to obtain a state pension forecast um, to help with accurate retirement planning. And once baseline expenditure has been met, it really gives licence to take investment risk with any pot of money used to fund discretionary spending. Now, many people have various different accounts, like you mentioned, estate pensions, there's probably other pensions and perhaps other assets. So how do you go about working out exactly how much you have from retirement? It's a, a good question. When planning for retirement, it can be really useful to carry out a consolidation exercise only where suitable. It enables all invested funds to be managed and monitored from one place and it makes a cohesive investment strategy easier to to put in place. And then from there, an estimated rate of return can be used to predict fund value at retirement and to help establish a safe withdrawal rate. Okay, and what what do you mean by one place? Are you saying that people should have everything on the same platform or do you mean consolidating different pensions in the SIP or or what? Either. um, A platform isn't necessarily Mm. suitable for all clients, but it really can be. Important to remember that 
a pension is simply one tax wrapper that can be used to help fund retirement planning. For those who have several different types of investment, different tax wrappers, an investment platform can absolutely be a really good way of consolidating not just pensions, but all invested funds. What do you do if you don't think you've got enough assets to retire at the age you want to with as much income as you want? Which is a quite a typical um, scenario. First, it's really worth maximising pension contributions up to what is clearly affordable. Um, contributions can be made up to the maximum of your UK relevant earnings is the uh, official line, essentially salary. It doesn't include dividends or up to the annual allowance. So whichever is the lowest of the two. Annual allowance currently being it's 40,000 a year? Annual allowance is currently 40,000. Important to note, though, that it's tapered away uh, for high earners Mm -hmm. to a minimum of 10,000. So for those earning between 150,000 and 210,000 a year, the annual allowance is tapered away down to a minimum of 10,000. It is possible to carry forward unused annual allowance, though, from previous tax years. How do you plan your retirement if you're not sure what age you want to retire at? Because let's say myself, I'm sure other people, I mean, how can you know exactly? Yeah, I mean, very, very often when speaking to to clients working up to retirement, it is vague, it is fluid. I suggest using a conservatively young retirement age. And then from that point, any additional years of saving and investment growth will simply be a bonus. Um, It's it's so much more common now for retirement to be phased rather than having a set retirement date. And holding a range of tax wrappers, as, as I was mentioning earlier, not just pensions, means that supplementary income can be generated really tax efficiently from a portfolio uh, in conjunction with part-time earned income if the retirement is phased. So are there any other key considerations when you're planning retirement? Yes, definitely. Um, So retirement income can be provided through the range of investment types. Pensions do remain a really tax efficient investment vehicle, though, particularly true in relation to death benefits. So just to go over that very quickly, pre-age 75, if death occurs pre-age 75, a pension can be left to any beneficiaries of your choosing free from tax. So not included in your estate for, for inheritance tax. Uh, If death occurs after age 75, uh, pension benefits are taxable at your beneficiary's highest marginal rate of income tax. But it's really, really worth ensuring that your death benefit nominations are set up uh, as you wish. Um, And at the same time, really worth checking that your will is up to date and consider uh, lasting power of attorneys as well. And what key mistakes you should try to avoid when planning your retirement? Um, Don't leave it too late is the obvious one really. Check that your investment vehicles aren't being eroded too heavily by charges. So just to do a bit of a health check there. Ensure a suitable investment strategy is selected, as we were talking about earlier with the whole risk discussion, to make sure um, that the expected returns are going to keep you on track to, to meet your your target income. Um, And then lastly, just to emphasise the point of considering your assets holistically rather than just simply focusing on pensions. Okay, thank you, Tams, and some really helpful tips on how to get your retirement planning on track. Earlier this year, 
Schroeder UK Growth Trust Board decided to change the management company which runs it from Schroeder's to Bailey Gifford following poor performance. The Schroeder's manager who was responsible for running the trust was Philip Matthews and it's now been announced that he too is leaving Schroeder's. Emma, you've been looking at this. Why is Philip Matthews leaving Schroeder's? So basically, he's going to be moving to a new investment company, Wise Funds, on the 3rd of September. And just to give the backstory of what, what's happened here, Schroeder UK Growth Trust Board announced that they were going to be changing managers to Bailey Gifford. They announced that in April, and the move has now taken place um, at the end of June. And basically, that was due to Philip Matthews um, having a bit of a poor performance record at the trust. And so the board decided that they were going to move managers and move from a value sort of style that Philip Matthews was using to a higher growth style. So what will Philip Matthews' role be at Wise Funds? So he's going to be co-manager of two multi-asset funds. Um, these are called TBY's Multi-Asset Growth. Um, which is a fund of funds, so invests mostly in open-ended funds and also investment trusts. And the second fund that Philip Matthews is going to be co-manager of is TBY's multi-assets income. So it's the income version of that fund. I have to ask, why has Wise Funds hired Philip Matthews after a spell of poor performance with his former fund, Schroeder UK Growth? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. Um, just to go over the numbers as to what he achieved when he was at Schroeder UK Growth. So over the, the period that he was managing the trust, he made 23.2%, um, which is actually a little ahead of a FTSE All Share, which made 21.5%, but quite below the sector average for um, the UK all companies sector. That, that made 31%. So you can see there's quite a big difference between his 23% and the 31% by the sector. But TB Wise managers, Wise funds, they think that actually the reason he's probably underperformed is due to his value style. And they like the fact that he has a value approach because the two funds are run using a, you know, a value, a very, in a very similar way, a value conscious way. So they actually think that he'll be a good fit for these funds. Okay, that's um, interesting. Um, I have to ask, are TBY's multi-asset growth and TBY's multi-asset income similar in any other ways to the funds that Mr Matthews used to run? The income fund has an equity portfolio as part of its holdings. It invests in a whole range of assets from fixed income, equities, as well as open-ended funds and investment trusts. And so you could say that the income side of things and the stock picking side of things is quite similar to what Philip Matthews has done in the past because he was a fund manager picking stocks. But the growth fund is a prim- you know, wholly a fund of funds which invests in funds and trusts. And he's never run a fund of that description before. OK, is that a problem then, do you think, for prospective investors? I mean, you should be worried that a fund manager who's never run a fund of funds is now going to be running a fund of funds. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a totally valid question. Um, the analysts I spoke to were not particularly worried about this um, because they said that actually that his ability as a fund manager of being on the other side of things or stock picking gives him an advantage as he you know, understands the nature of, of stock picking. He understands what it's like to be a fund manager and this is going to help him be able to analyse other managers and also understand you know, what they've got in their their portfolio and the underlying portfolio. So actually, it could be an advantage. 
some fair points, I suppose, ultimately a case of uh, watch this space. Also see this week's funds news in the magazine and on the website for Emma's full report on Philip Matthews' move to Wise Funds. That's all we've got time for today, but you can read more on risk, retirement planning and manager moves in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.